Good morning. It's good to hear you all saying hello and high fives and greeting. Um, keep doing it. It's great. One, one quick thing. Um, maybe some of you found a special message on your, on your invitation. Maybe just one or two of you. If you did, I hope you have a good laugh with that. Um, and then you'll need to go get another one because you need that space to write a special message, not a joke from Dale. But um, <laughs> anyway, if you have one, share the blessing with others, okay? It's funny. Um, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I am uh, honored to get to share God's word with you this morning. But um, before we do, one of the things that we wrestle with um, when we think about planning our Sunday services is we want this space to be a space where, where you have an opportunity to come and, and worship, worship God. That this space is fully devoted to praising him and worshiping him, learning about the truth of who he is, all of those things. And the reality is that there's the kingdom of God that we want to experience here, but then there's the kingdom of the world that oftentimes has some really gnarly things happen in it. And so, um, so we wrestle with that. We wrestle with how much do we talk about what happens in the world here in this, in this space. And so we just felt like this morning um, on, a, on a week where the news was full of injustice and hurt and pain, um, and particularly the one for me that stands out is the school shooting at Covenant Christian in, in Tennessee. It's just brutal, it broke my heart. Um, and part of what we know about God's heart for justice is it's not just a sit back and watch, but it's, it's a step in and participate. And that's tough for us to do when something happens thousands of miles away. But the one thing that we know we can do for sure is we can come before God. We can, we can come before God on behalf of the people who are broken and hurting and we can pray. And so um, we just wanted to give you an opportunity this morning to do that. I'm not, I'm not gonna pray for all of us. I wanna give you an opportunity to pray on your own. And that may, whatever God calls you to do, there's gonna be a prayer on the screen that we kind of piece together that you can use if you don't have the words. Um, but maybe it's just grieving with the parents and the fr families and the friends who are grieving. Maybe it's just lamenting on behalf of the news. Maybe it's praying for action to be taken that we don't see this continue to happen in our, in our country. Whatever, whatever that is, um, just take a minute right now as a part of your worship, as a part of aligning your heart with God's heart to pray um, for what's happened in our, in our country and our world this week. God, we, we know you see, we know that you care about the broken and the hurting, and so we beg for your mercy. Holy Spirit, come. Amen. And then the transition into, <clears throat> into the other things, excuse me. <clears throat> well, today is Palm Sunday, and um, it's that day that we remember on the church calendar that Jesus entered into Jerusalem for the final time. And so, I, like, I just want us to try and imagine it for a moment, okay? So this is, this is Passover week. 
Okay, so there's, there's uh, people from all over the Jewish diaspora who have come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast this week. And so some, some historians estimate conservatively, by the way, that there's 250,000 people in the city of Jerusalem this week. And some of what I read, most people think that it's probably closer to a million people in the city of Jerusalem. And you might not think that's a big deal, but the normal population of Jerusalem is 40,000. So it's a huge amount of people. It's actually, in 2021, the population of Los Gatos is 32,000. So it's like fitting everybody who came to the Warriors celebration parade last summer into Los Gatos for a week. Can you imagine that? There's a million people that came to the parade. Imagine them all celebrating in Los Gatos for a week. There would be tents everywhere. People would be sleeping in their cars in the parking lot. It's a massive amount of people. And the reason I like to think about it as the analogy of the Warriors Day Parade is everybody's there for the same reason. They're all there to celebrate. They're all Jewish people who are there to celebrate the feast of the Passover. They all have a similar worldview. They're all rooting for Steph Curry. They all want to see him, you know, all these things, right? So if you can imagine it, like just put yourself somewhere in Los Gatos, okay? And there's a million people around. And you can't see what's happening, but you hear it. You hear this shouting. People are saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They're lining the streets like out here on Los Gatos Boulevard, headed downtown, down into town. And maybe you can hear it from a distance. So Matthew goes on to say in his account that as Jesus enters the city, the whole city was stirred up. It's absolutely electric. There's a million people who are there to celebrate the Passover. They're there to celebrate the salvation of God. And they start to hear that the Messiah who's going to bring it is in town with them. This is crazy. But the craziest part about it is four days later, another crowd gathered to see Jesus. But they weren't shouting, save us. They're shouting, crucify him. So how does this happen? How in four days do we go from what looks like worship to demanding murder? And so it's not a coincidence that the book of Ecclesiastes speaks to this. And as we close our time, we've been looking over the last several weeks at this book of Ecclesiastes, this book of wisdom. We're going to look at what it says, and we're going to allow the wisdom to speak to us. So back when we started this series, we looked at Ecclesiastes 1. And it starts like this. It says, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And the reason that's important is because we're introduced to this teaching by someone else. It would be like a friend saying to us, hey, I found this awesome teaching. It's incredible. It changed my life. Let's watch it together, and then we'll talk about it at the end. So Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2 through 12, verse 8 is that teaching. That's what we've been looking at. But in 12, verse 9... Our friend, some people I've, I've read refer to him as the critic, and they call him the critic because he has an opinion on what we just listened to. Um, but our friend brings us back, and, he's, and he starts to give his opinion. But before we do, the last line of the sermon is perfect. We've called it a master class, and, and this is how the sermon ends. Vapor of vapor, says the teacher, all is vapor. This would be like Dale ending a sermon saying, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Let's pray. Okay, so I love it. I love the way that he ends. And then our, our friend, the critic, he steps right in and let's look at what he says. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. 
The words of the wise are like goads. They co- they're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Let's break this down a little bit and see what we can learn. In verse 9, he's basically saying, good job. Great teaching. I loved it. Thank you. He, uh, the critic, our friend, he commends the teacher for his value of teaching others. You see the, the note in there about Proverbs. This is where the connection many people make to King Solomon from Proverbs, the writer. That's where we get that idea. Verse 10, he says, the teacher searched to find the right words, and the words are true. Remember, we've, we've kind of talked about this whole series as a master class. Our, our critic is agreeing with us. He's saying he did a really good job. He was super intentional about the words, and he was true to what he was trying to say. And then we get this idea, goads and firmly embedded nails. What is that? And these are farming analogies that he's using. And a goad is like a, kind of like a spear that a farmer would use to control a big like cattle type creature or like firmly embedded nails is another tool that shepherds might use to, to get sheep back in line. And what he's, in, what he's really pointing out is the idea that even though these words are hard and the questions are challenging, if we listen to these words and if we accept these questions, it's for our good. Just like a shepherd who steers his flock. But now that the critic has given his feedback on the teacher in the sermon, he begins to give his own input and reflections. He says, be warned, my son, of anything in addition to these words, of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about this idea that in the ancient Near East there's this literature called pessimism literature. And it's this, this idea that they're searching for wisdom. They're, you could get a job, actually, as a wise man. This was a very popular thing at the time. And what the critic is saying, I think, is be warned of all of those books. There's no life there. Because apart from godly wisdom, it isn't really wisdom at all. And I think what he, I, I imagine, that he thought about, at least, using the word vapor. I think he might have thought about saying, but he didn't, much study of under the sun wisdom is vapor. Verse 13 and 14, he says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind. And verse 13 has kind of been our underlying theme verse for this series. If you have a wristband on the inside, it says fear and keep because the, the critic, he really puts emphasis here to fear God and keep his commandments. It's a little bit of an odd saying though, like what does it mean to fear God? Are we supposed to be afraid of him? Literally live in fear of God? And what commandments is he speaking of? So the word fear here is the same word used in Job 1. It talks about Job being a blameless man and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. It's used in Joshua 4 talking about the people. They stood in awe or fear of Joshua all the days of his life just as they had stood in awe or fear of Moses. Leviticus 19, it's translated respect. Each of you must respect, fear your father and mother. So what the critic is saying here is revere God, honor God, stand in awe of God, and maybe simply put, worship God. And what commandments is he telling us to obey? Maybe the first thing that comes to your mind is the 10 commandments. And I think if that's what you're thinking, you'd probably be right. The 10 are broken into two categories, to love God and to love people. 
Jesus, in his teaching, he summarizes this. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So as the critic, our friend, he's leaving us at the end of this sermon. He's saying, we've heard it all. We've heard all the wisdom under the sun, and this is what we should do. Worship God, love God, love people. But here's what's fascinating to me. Ecclesiastes is part of what's called the wisdom literature. There's three books, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Job in the Bible. But wisdom is scattered, it's littered, it's woven throughout all of scripture. I love how the Bible Project says, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning is look at some of the wisdom that informed the teacher and the critic of Ecclesiastes. And then look at what comes after Ecclesiastes and how wisdom is fulfilled in Jesus. Wisdom really starts at the very beginning, but we're going to skip forward a little bit and go to another sermon in the Bible. And it's the Sermon of Moses in Deuteronomy. Moses is God's prophet to the people of Israel, and he gives this sermon, the whole book of Deuteronomy, after they've been freed, freed from Egypt. They've wandered in the desert for 40 years, and they're finally about to enter the promised land. And here's his, here's his goal or his thesis for the sermon. He says, Moses undertook to explain the law. See, God chose Israel to be his covenant partners. Think of it like a marriage, like God and his people, to then be a blessing to the people around them. And the people's responsibility is to keep their agreement, their side of the agreement of the covenant. The way that the critic says it is keep the commandments. So this is what Moses is setting out to explain. So let's look at Deuteronomy 4, 6. It says, observe them, the commandments, carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations. Who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people? What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? So again, the nations that the Israelites are about to be neighbors with, the people of the ancient Near East, we already know that they've been seeking wisdom. It's so much so that Moses says they'll be able to identify it in the Israelites. But the critic warns us about this approach of the nations when he says, much study wearies the body. Because remember the outcome of the secular nations without the divine perspective in their search for meaning is that life isn't worth living. It's really, really sad. But Moses is saying here, what's gonna set God's people apart will be their wisdom and their wisdom is their obedience to the commandments of God and their obedience to the commandments of God will show the nations what kind of God they serve. One who is near, one who comes close, one who dwells with, with them, not at a distance like the gods of the nations, but a God who is with them. So first and foremost, obeying the commandments of God is to know God. The commandments are given as a re revelation of his character. And the commandments are a gift in order to know God. But the sec second thing to notice here is that Moses calls the commandments of God righteous. Essentially, he's saying that the commandments of God are whole and good and complete. If something is righteous, it's putting two things in right relationship with one another. And so the obedience of the commandments is putting people in right relationship with God. And the people who are now in right relationship with God are bringing that right relationship with them into, into the foreign nations. The nation's wisdom tragically led to death. But Moses is saying that God's law leads to life. 
So the commandments were first to reveal the character of God so that the people could know God and then cause them to represent God and bring life to the nations around them. Does this make sense? Sort of. Scripture gives us an example of this in 1 Kings. It's actually talking about the life of Solomon, and it says that the queen of Sheba hears of the wisdom and fame of Solomon, and she's so enamored by it that she comes to see for herself. So she sees everything that Solomon has. He shows her everything. She sits under his teaching. She experiences his wisdom, and it says she was so overwhelmed by it that she turned and worshiped God. Now, the queen of Sheba is an idol-worshiping pagan queen, And she turns because she saw the wisdom of God in Solomon. She turns and she worships the true God, Yahweh. Because from the very establishment of the law and commandments, the commandments are designed to be missional. When we obey the commandments of God, reflecting his heart and character, it beautifully and mysteriously brings life to the community around us. Moses builds on this idea throughout the sermon in Deuteronomy, and one of the passages that connects the idea of the fear of God and obeying his commandments is actually how he talks about what the king of Israel, the future king, should look like. Let's look at it quickly, Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. When the king takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priest. It is to be with him, and he is to read all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and those decrees. So the NIV uses revere here, but it's the same word in our passage in Ecclesiastes for fear. And so the wise king is the king who keeps the commandments of God, who meditates, them on all, who meditates on them all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord and the obedience of his commandments are constantly intertwined. Because the intent of the law was not to be restrictive and oppressive. It's given to show what God is like, to know him, to be like him. And then out of that relational understanding flows reverence and awe and worship. Imagine how ridiculous it would be if you had an acquaintance. Somebody you had maybe seen at parties, maybe you've said hi to them a few times here and there, but you've never spent time together. And then one time you did, you decided to get coffee or you decided to get lunch or something and you're sitting and waiting and when they come a few minutes late, they call you by the wrong name Maybe they call you Matt instead of Mark or something close. Like they get it close, but not quite right. And they start to tell you all these things that you're good at that you've never actually done or you don't care about. They tell you that they love you so much, but they have no idea who you are. They brought a gift to give you, but it has nothing to do with anything you actually like to do. Like it would be humorous and almost borderline offensive, right? But imagine if you sat down with a dear, dear close friend. They were there already before you got there. They had gotten the coffee that you like, like the mocha frappuccino with extra caramel drizzle or whatever it is that you like. They have it there for you. And when you sit down, they start to thank you for the acts of kindness that you showed them intentionally in your friendship, things that you've actually done for them, and they speak life into you. They tell you how much they love you and care about you and your family, and and they speak all of these things that are true about you. And they brought you a gift of something that you, they know you wanted, but you didn't want to spend the money on yourself and you're super excited about and it's generous. That would be received as a blessing, an honor and respect. Worship without knowledge is what the teacher would call vapor. And obedience without worship is also Vapor. Scripture goes on to give us examples of what it looks like, 
how it practically looks for the king based on what Moses writes in Deuteronomy 17. And interestingly, the fate of the king rests almost entirely not on how obedient he was, but how he responds when he's disobedient. First king of Israel is a guy named Saul. And there's a story where Saul goes out to battle. He wins the battle and God had commanded him to destroy everything. But Saul kept the good stuff. He sacrificed the bad stuff and he set up a monument to himself. So not only did he disobey, he took credit for the victory for himself. So there's the sin. Now let's look at how he responds. So God's messenger, the prophet Samuel, comes to see what's going on. He already knows something, something's up. And Saul says to him, look, I kept the commandment of the Lord. I have obeyed, but the people took the spoil. He's the most powerful guy in the, in the country, and he's throwing everybody under the bus. Right? Samuel basically says to him, you have rejected God, so God has rejected you. You can no longer be king. And he starts to walk away, and Saul, like, runs after him. This would be an incredible movie scene, by the way. Saul runs after him, grabs his robe, tears it, and he says, I've sinned, but honor me. Return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Saul's insecurity and self-preservation are screaming off the page, and it is, frankly, quite pitiful. And ultimately, Saul didn't know Yahweh. He calls him Samuel's God. He tried to keep the commandments, but he did it out of fear, not out of awe. He was afraid of God, but he didn't fear God. Saul tried to appease God with under-the-sun obedience, but didn't worship God in relational understanding. Now, again, the story gets pretty crazy from here. Um, David ends up being anointed by God as the next king, but the only people who know about it are Samuel and David. Saul is tormented by his sin. He never deals with it. And so one of his servants says, you should find somebody who can come play music for you. I know a guy. Who is it? David, the anointed but not inaugurated King David. So Saul only knows that David can play music and that he's a pretty good guy. So he invites him into his service. He lives in the temple. He lives in the court of the king. And every time that Saul is tormented by his sin because he hasn't dealt with it, the shame creeps up, the guilt creeps up. He asks David to come play music for him until he feels better. Saul tries to appease his sin before God. He tries to appease the feeling and the effects of sin in himself because he doesn't know God. David, on the other hand, becomes the second king of Israel. He's called God's king. He's called a man after God's own heart. He too commits a terrible sin. And while sin is sin, on paper, David's sin, at least in my opinion, looks way worse than what Saul did. He steals another man's wife. He gets her pregnant. He tried to cover it up. When he couldn't cover it up, he essentially has the guy killed and when he's confronted by the prophet for his sin, look at his response. I have sinned against Yahweh. There's no but, there's no deflection, there's no blaming. He just admits his sin. So Nathan the prophet says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die, but the child will. This is an awful, awful story. Um, but David fasts, he goes that whole night. He, he stays awake the whole night. He pleads with God for mercy. And when the child does die, look at his response. This is what David does. He went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Again, this, this story is awful, but the point of it is to show that David knows Yahweh. David knows God. 
He knew he was gracious, and so he pleads for the child's life despite his disobedience. He submits to the will of God when God doesn't relent, and he worships despite the tragedy. See, when we fear God out of a relational understanding of God, we can worship him no matter what. Saul has David play the harp to appease the guilt and shame of his disobedience. We know that Saul is continually tormented. It never really goes away. It leads to all sorts of unhealthy behavior, mistrust, fear, anger, ultimately his own death. But David digs deep and deals with his sin. Psalm 51 is David's response to this very story. I wonder if he even wrote it the night that he was pleading for the child's life. Look at the words that he uses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Those words right there are a quote from God talking about himself, by the way, in Exodus 34. He says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. You will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. See the difference? Saul deflects his sin because he's afraid of God. David owns his sin because he fears God. Saul tries to obey the commandments to protect his own image. David understands that obeying the commandments are to know God, and what God desires is humility. Worship without knowledge is vapor. Obedience without worship is appeasement. So the critic of Ecclesiastes ties these together because to live wisely, they're truly inseparable. So we've looked at some of the wisdom that informs Ecclesiastes. Now let's look at some of the wisdom that comes after Ecclesiastes fulfilled by Jesus. So Matthew 12, Jesus comes on the scene. He's spent time talking and teaching about what the kingdom of God looks like. And in this section, he starts to get all of these questions about who he really is. It starts with the prophet John the Baptist. He sends his followers to ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Messiah we've been waiting for? And Jesus answers the question, and maybe a little bit like the wise teacher in Ecclesiastes would. He doesn't say yes or no. He just says, he quotes Isaiah and says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. He's basically saying, I'm doing all these things. What do you think? Jesus goes on to rebuke cities that he had, that have seen him do miracles, but refuse to repent. He says the kingdom belongs to children, literally the powerless, hinting that the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom that people were expecting. He likens himself to King David, putting himself in the line of the Messiah. He heals on the Sabbath, breaking the rules of the Pharisees. Matthew again quotes Isaiah's prophecy, showing that Jesus is the guy. He's giving all these clues. And then the Pharisees speak up and they accuse him of doing all of his works by the power of Satan. And Jesus just responds, why, why, would, why would Satan heal the effects of Satan? And the ironic thing to me is that the Pharisees come back at him and they ask him for a miracle. Which, I don't know, whatever, we can talk about that another time. Uh, Matthew 12, 42, this is how Jesus responds to their request. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. Jesus is jumping back to 1 King, the Kings, the story of the conversion of the Queen of Sheba that we talked about earlier. But look how he finishes. And now something greater than Solomon is here. He's reinforcing what Moses said. 
The wisdom of God is missional. And he's giving evidence using the story of Solomon that the pagans recognized the greatness of God through Solomon's wisdom. Why could the very people of God not realize he was standing right in front of them? It's because they were looking for the wrong thing. They kept the commandments. They're actually really good at keeping the commandments and enforcing them over other people. But this is exactly why the critic says wisdom is the connection of fearing God and keeping his commandments. The wisdom prescribed by Moses in Deuteronomy 4, specified in Deuteronomy 17, sought after in flawed human kings, written about in Ecclesiastes, Matthew makes it clear that it's ultimately fulfilled in the work, the life, and the ministry of Jesus the Messiah. And so this brings us back to Palm Sunday. The beginning of Jesus' inauguration as the one true, wise, ultimate king. And as he enters Jerusalem, a scene that would cause people to imagine the past kings of Israel riding in victoriously after a battle back into the city. Let's look at what the crowd says again. Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So again, how does it happen that four days later the shouts went from save us to crucify him? And the answer is in their expectation. Look at what they shouted when he entered. And the key is in this line. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Jesus spent his entire ministry talking about and showing what the kingdom of God is like. Matthew uses the term kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven 40 times in his gospel alone. And the thing that Jesus feared would would happen by him saying that he was the Messiah, the king of the kingdom, is exactly what happened. The people were still looking for the kingdom of David. They're longing for the good old days and waiting for a king to overthrow Rome and restore the kingdom to Israel. Unfortunately, Solomon was right. There's nothing new under the sun. The next generation doesn't learn from the previous. The very thing that led the Jews to being oppressed by Rome, the disassociation of the fear of God and the keeping of his commandments is the very same disassociation in the shouts from the crowd as the Messiah rides by. They kept the commandments. They're literally in the city because they're keeping the commandments of following the feast of Passover. But they couldn't see that the very thing they were celebrating God's sacrificial provision of salvation was being delivered to them once and for all in Jesus riding by on a donkey. They were looking for the kingdom they wanted and they missed the king they needed. It's vapor. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes connects the fear of God and keeping his commandments so intentionally. Because when we worship God without keeping the commandments, without really knowing God, Worship is just foolish paper. When we keep the commandments without the fear of the Lord, it's under the sun appeasement. And from my understanding, God is not interested in appeasement. However, when we fear God and keep his commandments, we experience life as it's meant to be. When we fear God and keep his commandments, we can bring life to the community around us. When we fear God and keep his commandments, we can deal with our sin like David, not pacify our sin like Saul. So on this Palm Sunday, the beginning of the inauguration of King Jesus, what's the kingdom that we're longing for? Maybe to make it more personal, if you were to assess the kingdom of your own life, who's the king? 
Because the king riding on a colt into Jerusalem isn't bringing the kingdom anyone expected. The world's kingdom is run by power and politics, war and violence, self-preservation, preference and pride. But the kingdom Jesus brought is a kingdom of service and sacrifice, love, healing, self-denial and humility. And so the risk we face going into this holy week, the week where we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, is that by separating the fear of God and the obedience of his commandments, the worship of God and the knowledge of who he is, we too can miss the Messiah, the Messiah we need who's standing right in front of us. As we do every week after we look at God's word, we take a time to respond. And so I just invite you to bow your head and close your eyes and just take a moment to to be quiet before God. And I don't know, maybe simply ask, have I separated my worship of you and my obedience to you? Have I elevated one over the other? If you're not sure words to use, you could use the word of the words of David when he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any dangerous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. This the separate the separation can happen to all of us in some way or another. It's easy to get off track. But the important thing is to allow God to bring us back into alignment with him, back to the worship of the true God, the true King, back to understanding of who he is, and back to obedience out of that reverence and awe 